in the beginning, it would seem. More nary a word was spoke, but a lot was said. Yes, a lot was said indeed. You see, a lot was said, dear listener, not by rhetoric and claim and volley, but rather much better. A lot was said by action, love, indeed. In the beginning, we go back now, and we take a look at the scene. The Lord God forms the man and plants him in the east. There's a garden in the east, with birds nestled high in trees. High up in the branches formed, they sit and chirp with glee. What do you see? What do you see? There's bright blue skies and snow-capped peaks, effervescent grass and perfect harmony. While standing on the eternal shores, you might look out and see the hand of God reach deep into the ocean's mighty waves. From the weeds he might pull a wet clump of clay to see what it would be. He mashes it and smashes it and gently caresses the face, the creature into be. He throws it up and out and it swims about and goes on its merry way. What do you feel? What do you feel? The wind that graces cheek, the power of the Almighty, the Almighty rivers that flow and divide into four, perfect harmony? With everything in order no chaos has yet caused, so put yourself there, dear listener, for just a moment more, and feel the warmth, for from the great, the mighty, and the joyous, you are redeemed love. Hey, I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank everyone that has donated to the project over the past couple of weeks. It means a lot to see people wanting to engage with Bible Unbound and see it grow into something beautiful. So, hey, if you want to donate to Unbound, you can at patreon.com or on Indiegogo. But if you don't want to donate to Bible Unbound, then hey, that's all right. I'm just glad you're here listening. Okay, let's explore. Have you ever thought about what it would have been like to live in the Garden of Eden? To many Judeo-Christian cultures around the world, and for centuries, they've considered the Garden of Eden to represent the Shalom of God. Shalom is the Hebrew word meaning peace, but it's come to take on greater significance than the English word for peace. If indeed the Garden of Eden is truly the perfect Shalom of God, then we see what it would have been like. It would have been like harmony. The perfect fullness of God operating in perfect harmony with man, man operating in perfect harmony with others, and humanity operating in perfect harmony with all of creation. There would be enough food to eat, there would be no wars, no strife, no oppression. It would be a perfectly just society, with the creator God as judge and ruler, 
in humanity, operating as perfect divine representatives of God. Indeed, humanity operating as perfect divine representatives with God. Eden would be full of life, full of all the beautiful things in the world, from steel blue skies to amber fires, from creative creations to empirical evidences, the whole world operating as a perfect, harmonious system. And it's this perfect, harmonious system that the biblical authors are leading us on a journey away from, in the hopes of getting back to it. If there were ever a king to perfectly personify the tumultuous nature of the heart of Israel, it was Solomon. However, Solomon wrapped up into one package all of the best, if not more so, of King David, and all of the worst, if not more so, of King Saul. Solomon was like a biblical Jekyll and Hyde. Simultaneously, he raptures the Israelite people into a world most like Eden, while also pushing them into the depths of Sheol. This is perfectly captured when in 1 Kings 3.3, the author writes that Solomon, quote, loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David. But then in 1 Kings 11.1, the author writes that Solomon, quote, loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Except here's the thing about Solomon. Both of these realities lived within him at all times during his reign. While one moment he was building large gardens for everyone to dwell in, the next he was building large armies for everyone to fight in. The picture of Solomon painted for us in the words of scripture are unlike any of his predecessors in that Solomon is both a representative of the snake crusher and a representative of the snake himself without any indication or single moment of his fall from grace. His fall from grace is simply his entire life. Indeed, calling into question the faithfulness of all of Israel. Woven into the tapestry of this complex man, Solomon starts off his reign by praying to God for wisdom. And the book notes how this was the most honoring and selfless prayer he could have prayed. And thus it was granted to him. Solomon uses this wisdom to organize and structure his kingdom, allowing him to expand the borders far beyond what David had done. The author writes that Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan, even to Beersheba, every man under his own vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. And people from all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Hmm. Wisdom. Do you remember what tree Adam and Eve weren't allowed to eat from? The tree of knowing good and evil. Is that not the basis of wisdom? Fearing the Lord, knowing right from wrong. You see, this should make images of the Garden of Eden dance within our minds, as the true realization of the kingdom of God is coming to fruition in the life and reign of King Solomon. If it weren't for Solomon... <laughs> The author carefully and purposefully places right in the middle of the words that I just read how in the midst of every man having their own tree to sit under and vine to eat from, Solomon was, quote, acquiring many horses for himself, many horses and many chariots. <gasps> 
Okay, so maybe you don't quite see the significance just yet, but let's flip over and take a look with me at Deuteronomy 17.16. The author writes, Only the king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Solomon's done both of these things. He's acquiring many horses, and he's pushed the boundary of Israel all the way back to Egypt. In the middle of beauty, chaos. During the reign of the judges, it took two whole books to show us this contradiction, and now it's fulfilled in one man. Oof. And we see this pendulum swing throughout the reign of Solomon. One moment, he's ushering in an era of unprecedented Eden-like governance, and the next... He's calling the Israelites into further idolatry. Right after creating this state of Eden-like existence, where man has dominion over the earth, and man has dominion over the plants, and they all have trees and food to eat, Solomon begins to build the temple. This, this is a good thing. It means he's ushering in an era of unadulterated access to the presence and power of God, and he's fulfilling what God had promised to David. He even cites the promise God made to David to ensure the building of the temple. Solomon says, As God said, Your son whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. And this becomes the impetus for him to build the temple. Which, as we've been going, we've noted how the snake crusher will architect the temple of God. He will redeem the land. He will be righteous and just and so on. Solomon is edifying all of these themes. (sighs) And then he drafts 30,000 men of forced labor to build the temple, calling to mind Samuel's warning to the Israelites who put Saul over them of the corrupt king. The question becomes, will Solomon be a Saul, the snake, or David, the snake crusher? Well, Solomon does build the temple successfully. It takes him seven total years to build one of the largest, most magnificent temples in Israel's history. Indeed, Solomon was right that David's son will build a space in which the people of God will have unfiltered access to God. But remember, the son of David that God talked about, his throne will last forever. He will not be consumed by greed and pride. For while it takes Solomon seven years to build the temple, it takes him 13 years to build his own house. The author juxtaposes once again Solomon's quest for honoring the Lord, the God of Israel, a good and righteous pursuit, with Solomon seeking his own glory and power above that of God, choosing what is right in his own eyes. Quickly after building the temple, however, Solomon dedicates the temple by praying this powerful and beautiful blessing over it, furnishing it completely, and the Lord appears to Solomon, and and he says, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, 
I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. You see, Solomon lives his life. His kids live their life. Walking on the edge of a knife. And as the rest of the books of the kings will demonstrate, this is symbolic of how Israel too, as a nation, is walking their faith on the edge of a knife. One small falter in the entire nation will come crumbling down. And Solomon's reign is the beginning of it. The story of Solomon ends with three powerful vignettes. The first, the Queen of Sheba comes. Undoubtedly, the author wants us to see this in light of David and Bathsheba, or even Adam and Eve. There's a man and a woman who are brought together by unusual circumstances and they're tested. The question raised is, will they sin together? Here, Solomon passes the test. He doesn't force the Queen of Sheba to be his wife. He doesn't do anything adulterous. He passes. But the second is unlike it. <laughs> Solomon has amassed massive amounts of wealth, which was forbidden by Deuteronomy 17. And he's also married several foreign wives outside of the Queen of Sheba. The story ends with Solomon being rejected, and we, the reader, are thrust into the dark world of the kings after his story. Indeed, the kings coming after Solomon will take up his likeness by decidedly turning away from Yahweh, their true king and God, in thrusting the nation into the most traumatic darkness the history of Israel would have experienced up to that point. But let's pump the brakes. Solomon's story tells us something profound about the nature of the Messiah, despite him being Jekyll and Hyde. While yes, the Messiah's throne won't end like Solomon's obviously did, and while yes, he won't be identified with the snake like Solomon obviously was at many times in his life, he will bring about an era of uncanny, of divine, peace and wholeness to the land and to the people of God. Indeed, the snake crusher in the act of crushing the head of the snake will usher in the era of Eden. They will bring peace, and peace perfectly, to the hearts of the hurt, the broken, the downcast, the wearied, and the anxious. The snake crusher in the act of crushing the head of the snake will be a king whose wealth will so far exceed that of Solomon, whose, whose wisdom will be so far beyond that of Solomon that everyone will dwell in safety and have an unending supply of food to eat. But the Messiah's reign will not usher in an era of Eden that will extend from the Euphrates to Egypt, from Dan to Beersheba. But the Messiah's reign will be one that extends to the ends of the earth. It's promised in Genesis. It's as if the world were filled with the dead. The snake crusher will cause the world to spring to life. He will cause the perfect, all-surpassing peace of God to be raised in the hearts of humanity. He will cause love and justice and righteousness to reign on earth. And he won't do it as some vexatious Jekyll and Hyde ruler, unable to decide right from wrong or choosing right in his own eyes. He will perfectly and beautifully discern the will of God and usher in the ultimate, true era of Eden. Thanks so much. My name is Austin, and this was Bible Unbound.